Just a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 97 of History of the Marine Corps, Marine Aviation, Part 1. A few years before the United States entered World War I, the Navy started playing around with the idea of aircrafts. Marine First Lieutenant Alfred A. Cunningham was one of the first pilots to attend training in Maryland, and he helped develop the Marine Aviation Program. Marines who followed in his footsteps developed or perfected a lot of tactics that are still used today. We start the episode in the year 1911 and talk about how aviation contributed to World War I, the Banana Wars, and the start of World War II. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. World War I changed how the United States viewed the capabilities of the Marine Corps. Before the Great War, Marines weren't considered capable of defeating large armies in battle. It wasn't because Marines were an inadequate fighting force. Far from it. This just wasn't the purpose of the Corps. Early Marines primarily helped in naval engagements and secured territories through amphibious landings. They also periodically helped the Army, but never were they responsible for fighting large-scale battles. During World War I, Marines were tested against greater foes, and they proved their worth to the United States. The decade before World War I also saw a lot of technological progress, and military strategy began to incorporate new weapons. Automobiles changed the landscape of logistics, and vehicles took the place of horses for transporting troops and equipment. Advances in communication technology allowed commanders to speak with Marines in real time. Weapons such as artillery, machine guns, and small arms were more durable and accurate, which resulted in more firepower. And during World War I, the benefits of aircraft began to make themselves known, and Marines were at the forefront of military aviation. Naval Aeronautics first started in July 1911 when the U.S. Navy purchased the A-1 and A-2 from Glenn Curtis. Curtis contacted the Navy a year prior and demonstrated that his aircraft could be deployed from land and ships at sea. The Navy saw the use for such a craft 
and they agreed to purchase these planes. The Navy established an aeronautics school in Maryland to train new pilots. And on May 22, 1912, Marine First Lieutenant Alfred A. Cunningham was sent there to train. May 22nd is considered the birth of Marine Corps aviation, and Cunningham is the father of Marine Corps aviation. On August 1st, 1912, only after two hours and 40 minutes of training, Cunningham made his first solo flight. He was placed on the chambers board with six other naval officers, and he was ordered to develop a comprehensive plan for the organization of a naval aeronautic service. Cunningham's training and assignment meant that Marines were involved with naval aviation since its inception. Marines were also pivotal in experimenting with the aircraft's capabilities, and some of the earliest Marine Corps pilots made significant progress in developing tactics for aircraft. Marine First Lieutenant Bernard Smith experimented with dropping bombs from planes. Cunningham tested with taking off from battleships, and Lieutenant Francis Evans was one of the first persons to perform a loop in a seaplane, and he was a pioneer of stall and spin recovery techniques. The Marine Corps saw a lot of value in aviation, and on December 27, 1913, the Advanced Base Force was activated, and two officers and seven enlisted Marines were assigned to this new post. When the United States officially entered World War I, the Corps' aviation detachment had six officers, one warrant officer, and 43 enlisted. That small detachment eventually split into two units. The 1st Marine Aviation Squadron, which supported aircraft designed to take off from land, and the 1st Marine Aeronautic Company, which consisted of seaplanes. By the end of the war, the number of Marines serving in aviation exploded to over 2,400. In January 1918, the 1st Marine Aeronautic Company sent 18 seaplanes to Ponta Delgado for anti-submarine patrol operations making them the first U.S. aviation unit to travel overseas that were thoroughly trained and equipped. But despite their training, Marine aviation units never spotted German U-boats during their patrols. In July 1918, Marines from the 1st Aviation Force landed in France to support the war. But their aircraft didn't arrive as quickly. Instead of twiddling their thumbs, Marine pilots jumped in British and French planes to support Allied forces. At the start of World War I, aircraft were used for surveillance. They didn't have any weapons equipped on the craft, and early enemy pilots would wave as they passed into each other's territory. Pilots would periodically take shots at the enemy with their pistol or rifle, and soon, that evolved into machine guns being mounted on aircraft. After working out some design flaws, the most critical being aiming around the propeller and other components vital to flight, the synchronization gear was developed that allowed a weapon to fire through the arc of the spinning propeller without hitting the blades. Marine pilots shot down between 4 to 12 German planes during their time in World War I. They also performed the first recorded aerial resupply mission by dropping food to Allied forces who were isolated for several days on the Western Front. Three Marine pilots were awarded the Distinguished Service Medal for this mission. 
Medals of honor were also given to Second Lieutenant Ralph Talbot and his observer, Gunnery Sergeant Robert Guy Robinson, for shooting down two enemy planes against overwhelming odds. Here's Talbot's Medal of Honor citation. Quote, For exceptionally meritorious service and extraordinary heroism while attached to Squadron Charlie, 1st Marine Aviation Force in France. Second Lieutenant Talbot participated in numerous air raids into enemy territory. On October 8, 1918, while on such a raid, he was attacked by nine enemy scouts and shot down an enemy plane in the fight that followed. Also, on October 14, 1918, while on a raid over Pinten, Belgium, 2nd Lieutenant Talbot and another plane became detached from the formation because of motor trouble and was attacked by 12 enemy scouts. During the severe fight that followed, his plane shot down one of the enemy scouts. His observer was shot through the elbow and his gun jammed. 2nd Lieutenant Talbot maneuvered to gain time for his observer to clear the jam with one hand and then returned to the fight. The observer fought until shot twice, once in the stomach and once in the hip, and then collapsed. 2nd Lieutenant Talbot attacked the nearest enemy scout with his front guns and shot him down. With his observer unconscious and his motor failing, he dived to escape the balance of the enemy and crossed the German trenches at an altitude of 50 feet landing at the nearest hospital to leave his observer, and then returning to his aerodrome. Unquote. Despite the success of a few pilots in World War I, aviation never supported any Marine units on the ground. In September 1920, Major Cunningham commented on the value of aviation to the Corps in the Marine Corps Gazette. Quote, One of the greatest handicaps which Marine Corps aviation must now overcome is a combination of doubt as to the usefulness, lack of sympathy, and a feeling of doubt on part of some line officers that aviators and aviation enlisted men are not real Marines. He goes on to say, It is fully realized that the only excuse for aviation in any service is its usefulness in assisting the troops on the ground to successfully carry out their operations. Unquote. Cunningham spends a lot of time justifying the use of aircraft, and defending against the claims that aviators aren't real Marines. I'll post a link to the article on historyofthemarinecorps.com if you would like to read it. But two things have been consistent with Marines since the beginning of the Corps. One is that we love to complain. And two, Marines absolutely hate change. The latter is a little ironic since we love to brag about our ability to improvise, adapt, and overcome. But the talking points you hear about changes are always the same. Not being real Marines is a commonly used insult, and I'm not surprised it would use regarding aviation. You see this one thrown around all the time on social media. Another big one is that change will bring the end of the Marine Corps. This one dates back to the early 1800s, when the term fifers was changed to trumpeters and Marines lost their shit. Bring up any changes to Marines whether it's Force Design 2030, tattoo policies, new uniform regulations, new PFT standards, just about any new policy, and you will get one of those two answers. The great thing about understanding Marine Corps history is the power of hindsight. 
the dire consequences expressed by these dramatic Marines never come to fruition. And in the case of aviation, I don't think they could have been more wrong. Aviation is now a pivotal component of the Marine Air Ground Task Force. In the 20 years between World Wars, the Marine Corps went through extensive improvements, including aviation strategies. Marines were the only U.S. aviation squadron that saw combat during this time. Marine Air served in Santo Domingo from February 1919 until July 1924, Haiti from March 1919 to August 1934, and Nicaragua from 1927 to 1933. Pilots significantly contributed to new tactics, one of which was dive bombing. The origin of dive bombing doesn't belong to the Marine Corps. Although the beginning isn't exactly clear, the Royal Naval Air Service used it as a tactic against some targets during World War I. But the Marine Corps did have a primary role in perfecting it. In 1919, Lieutenant Lawson Sanderson was deployed to Santo Domingo. He discovered that he was much more accurate when he pointed his plane towards the target and released a bomb at a 45-degree angle, at around 250 feet. In 1927, Major Ross Rowell expanded on Sanderson's strategy and led possibly the first organized dive bombing attack in history, and perhaps the first low-altitude attack against an organized enemy ever used to support ground troops. On July 16th, a detachment consisting of 38 Marines was attacked by rebels. Two DH-4s were on patrol, saw something that they didn't feel was quite right for the Marines, and headed towards their location. While one of the DH-4s strafed the rebels, the others landed to see what was happening. After confirming the Marines were in trouble, the second DH-4 headed back to camp, and Rowell dispatched four DH-4s, each armed with four 25-pound bombs and as much machine gun ammunition as a plane could carry. These aircraft attacked the rebels, killing 56 and injuring over 100. Sanderson's tactics were so successful that Marine pilots would put on dive bombing expeditions at air shows in the United States and Canada after Nicaragua. His method was used in World War II and became known as glide bombing. Another first that happened in Nicaragua was troops on the ground directing aircrafts. A Marine patrol pinned down by Nicaraguan bandits spotted several Marine planes flying overhead. The patrol laid out panels of cloth on the ground, signaling the direction and range of the enemy to the planes flying above. The subsequent bombing and strafing attacks became the first known instance of an air attack being directed by ground troops. This tactic became a fundamental element of close air support in future wars. The value of aircraft in combat was undeniable, but this effect wasn't limited to killing the enemy. In 1928, First Lieutenant Christian F. Schilt made multiple rescue flights in Nicaragua. When bandits critically wounded Marines near Kualali, Schilt used a dangerously short, improvised airstrip to make numerous takeoffs. He'd fly out any wounded troops and bring back more ammunition and supplies for the remaining Marines. His actions earned him the Medal of Honor. His citation reads, quote, 
During the progress of an insurrection at Kualali, Nicaragua, 6, 7, and 8 January 1928, First Lieutenant Schilt, then a member of a Marine expedition which had suffered severe losses and killed and wounded, volunteered under almost impossible conditions to evacuate the wounded by air and transport a relief commanding officer to assume charge of a very serious situation. First Lieutenant Schilt bravely undertook this dangerous and important task, and by taking off a total of 10 times in the rough, rolling street of a partially burning village, under hostile infantry fire on each occasion, succeeded in accomplishing his mission, thereby actually saving three lives and bringing supplies and aid to others in desperate need." Unquote. By 1930, aviation was a vital component of the Corps, and aircraft were embedded with two major marine units stateside, one in Quantico and the other in San Diego. Aviation detachments were also based in Nicaragua, Haiti, and Guam. Marine aviators in the 1930s were breaking and creating records left and right. In July 1930, Captain Arthur Page and Lieutenant Vernon Guyman set a record for completing the longest recorded blind flight, flying from Omaha to Washington, D.C. Captain Page, who earlier in the year won the Curtis Marine Trophy Race, an annual event for service seaplanes, died in a crash in September of 1930. Between 1931 and 1934, VS-14M and VS-15M became the first Marine squadrons to become part of the Fleet Air Organization, and they were assigned to the carriers Saratoga and Lexington. In 1932, Marines experimented with the Pitcairn Autogyro, known as the OP-1. I'll throw a picture of this thing on the website, but it looks like someone installed the helicopter rotor on a plane. Major Francis McCauley was one of the first aviators testing this new craft. He reported that its value was in, quote, inspecting small fields recommended by ground troops as landing areas, evacuating medical sitting cases, and ferrying of important personnel, unquote. But the craft couldn't carry heavy loads and went through fuel quickly. These shortcomings were enough for the OP-1 to never see service in the Marine Corps or any other military branch. By the end of 1933, the creation of the Fleet Marine Force required leadership to redefine amphibious assault. This evaluation included new strategies for marine aviation in support of ground operations, cementing the importance of aircraft in the fleet. In 1939, the General Board of the Navy clarified Marine Aviation's mission. Quote, it was to be equipped, organized, and trained primarily for support of the Fleet Marine Force in landing operations and the field, and secondarily as replacements for carrier-based aircraft. Unquote. Two years later, the aviation section at Quantico was separated from the Division of Operations and Training, and became an independent unit under the Commandant. Less than a year later, it moved to a division under the Director of Aviation, who served as an advisor to the Commandant and a liaison between the Marine Corps and Navy Bureau of Aeronautics. By the end of the 1930s, the Fleet Marine Force was organized into the 1st Brigade located on the East Coast and the 2nd Brigade 
on the West Coast. Each brigade had an aviation detachment. On May 7, 1941, the first Marine aircraft wing was created at Quantico, and three days later, the second Marine aircraft wing was stood up in San Diego. Seven months later, Marine Aircraft Group 21 had all but one of its aircraft destroyed during Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor. The bombing of Pearl Harbor forced the United States to enter World War II. The Marine Corps learned a lot during the First World War, and they used many of these lessons in 1941. One of those ideas was to permit women to join the Marine Corps. But unlike our sisters during the Great War, women in World War II were allowed to serve in what were traditional male roles, freeing up tens of thousands of men for assignment to combat. Despite complaints from Leathernecks that these women weren't real Marines, or that this will be the end of the Marine Corps, tens of thousands of women showed up to recruiter stations to serve their country. And one of the roles women were assigned during World War II was an aviation mechanic. Although Germany dominated the number of aces during World War II, the Marine Corps had its fair share. The top was either Major Gregory Pappy Boyington or Captain Joseph J. Foss. Boyington had 28 aerial victories, compared to Foss's 26. The reason I'm unsure why Boyington is not number one, even though he has more victories, is because some of those wins is when he served with the American Volunteer Group, which were volunteer air units organized by the United States government. But regardless of who deserves the top ace of the Marine Corps title, the point is Marine aviation was incorporated heavily into tactics used during World War II. When the war shifted to the Central Pacific, Major General Holland Smith recommended that at least one Marine aircraft wing be explicitly assigned for direct air support and landing operations. This support would evolve, and a year later, the 1st Night Fighter Squadron was activated. As the Marine Corps established various methods of aerial combat, it had to give more consideration to the means of providing early fire support for landing troops. There were times when artillery wasn't available for ground forces, and to compensate, the Marine Corps evolved the concept of close air support. This idea was hazardous at the time, as close air support referred to attacking targets that were located close to U.S. troops thus increasing the risk of friendly fire. But this was the primary purpose of Marine Corps aviation, and they developed strategies to help support ground forces. The smaller battles fought in Haiti and Nicaragua helped Marines prepare for World War II, and their skills and close air support impressed many people, including the U.S. Army. General MacArthur wanted Marine Corps aviation assigned to his command, to provide close air support to Army infantry troops. The Marine Corps sent four air groups, composed of fighters and dive bombers, to support the U.S. Army until the end of the war. The effectiveness of Marine pilots during this battle resulted in a close air support school being launched, under the direction of Lieutenant Colonel Keith McCutcheon. This school resulted in the Army, Air, and Navy establishing Marine Corps tactics. Quote, Close air support is an additional weapon to be employed only at the discretion of the ground commander. 
he may employ it against the targets that cannot be reached by any other weapons, or in conjunction with the ground weapons in a coordinated attack. It should be immediately available, and should be carried out with deliberation and accuracy and in coordination with other assigned units. Unquote. By the end of the war, a system was created for land troops requesting air support. A request would go directly to the Tactical Air Direction Center. These requests will be monitored, and if approved, will be controlled by the forward air controller. This new system helped introduce the flexibility of calling in air support without sacrificing the safety of ground troops or compromising the overall mission. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll continue our conversation on aviation. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is The Naval War of 1812 by Theodore Roosevelt. I relied on this book as a reference for many of the episodes about early naval warfare. Roosevelt wrote this book when he was in his early 20s. It was considered a success at the time, and this book is still referenced by many historical scholars today. If you're looking for a book that tells a riveting story about the War of 1812, I'm going to be honest with you, this isn't it. I found the details fascinating, but this isn't really an entertaining book. It focuses on the naval battles and technology used during the War of 1812, and reads more like a thesis, but the information in this book is fascinating if you're into naval history. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.